Hey, everyone. You're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. I'm Jamer Brazil, your host. Our guest today is Jessica Nordell, author and speaker. In 2001, she published The End of Bias, A Beginning, and that'll be the topic for today's episode. Jessica has served as a teacher and journalist. She studied physics at MIT and holds a degree in physics from Harvard and an MFA in poetry from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Jessica, welcome to the Happy Market Research Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. PubUX is a research operations platform for private panel management, qualitative automation, including video audition questions, and surveys. For a limited time, user seats are free. If you'd like to learn more or create your own account, visit hubux.com. It is an honor to have you. I'm really excited about jumping into the topic of your book. But before we do, I like to provide a little bit of context. Please tell us about your parents, specifically what they did and how that informs what you do today. (laughs) That's such an interesting question. Uh, You know, I think it was more, well, I'll tell you what my parents did, but I think it was actually more kind of their approach to life that really influenced what I did with my own career. So my my dad is a, a retired physician, and my mom was a counselor before my sister and I were born. And then after we were born, she stepped back from that role and shifted her attention to researching the stock market. And she became kind of an autodidact with investments and and kind of understanding companies and and how to how to make sense of of companies stock performances and that became her kind of main activity as we were growing up but i think it was really my parents kind of spirit of curiosity that really influenced my choices in my career there there was always this kind of attitude in my house that if you didn't know something you should go find out the answer. Or, you know, we had a world book encyclopedia. And whenever my sister and I had a question about something in the world, my parents would say, well, why don't you go look it up? And I think, I think that really fostered my spirit of, of curiosity and of just like trying to seek out answers all the time, which then became my career really as a journalist, because that's what we do. We're, we, try, you know, we, we try to uncover what's really going on and try to understand a particular issue from all angles. What year did your mom make the career shift to uh, stock analysis? You know, I think it would have been sort of the early 80s. Okay, so this is pre-E-Trade by a long shot. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, so she, I, she would go to the library in downtown Green Bay, where I grew up, Green Bay, Wisconsin, and look at like Morningstar reports, you know, thick books of like stock reports and kind of pour over them and study them. Um, yeah, it was before, yeah, before things became a lot simpler via the internet. Yeah, and maybe even more complex in the same breath. For me, it brings back this memory of my late grandfather. He and I on Saturday, uh, Sunday, excuse me, Sunday mornings, we would look at the uh, paper and, and track specific stocks uh, using graph paper. So you could see the historical really? frameworks. Yeah, yeah, over time. And we have literally still, I have journals upon journals of stocks that we would track. Some as hobbyists and some as actual investments, which is kind of interesting, but but there was like a visceralness that you connected to the companies back in those days that I, I think in a lot of ways, the digitization of that process has sort of has really removed that, or maybe it's just me being a little bit nostalgic. Yeah. One of the things that is interesting that I resonate with is the fact that your parents, in a lot of ways, it sounds like they taught you that you can 
So there was an enablement or even the right to learn and figure out that was is one of the things that foundationally enabled you to be a successful journalist, speaker, and and author. I think so, you know, and I think, you know, I, ha- I hadn't actually thought about it before, but as we're talking about this, I probably, the fact that my mom just kind of independently just developed this kind of career with, you know, just completely self-taught, um, you know, studying stocks and kind of understanding how investments work, also, I think, gave me the sense that, you know, if you're interested in something and you're motivated, like there's nothing stopping you from pursuing it, from learning more, from, you know, kind of going in a particular direction. And I think it also kind of taught me to not take no for an answer. I mean, many times over the course of researching this book, I ran into some kind of big obstacle or, you know, some problem that hadn't been answered, you know, a question that hadn't been answered or a problem that hadn't been solved. And I think I just kind of I don't know, constitutionally, I'm kind of undeterred by that. Then I'm like, okay, well, then I guess I just have to figure out another approach to this unsolvable problem. I love that. Yeah. And and there was a lot of problem solving in those days. And not that there isn't today, but, but you know, we were very much limited to volumes uh, as opposed to digital access, right, to almost everything. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I think the the topic of bias is very interesting because certainly there was bias that was contained in whether it's the encyclopedia or other things that we would have considered to be more like canon more more <laughs> truth in the mm-hmm. at least from my experience i mean if it was in the encyclopedia then that was just the truth of it right that was the last that was the final word right whereas now we have such a volume of points of view on various things that on everything that you can really see how in more of a visceral connection of, of how bias can frame your worldview Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think we have such a a much deeper understanding or there's a a much more of a broad cultural understanding that a person's particular perspective and life experience and vantage point are going to influence how they, you know, what subjects they think are important and, and how they think about those and what questions they ask and, you know, where their blind spots are. And absolutely, all of those things were embedded in the World Book Encyclopedia in the 1980s, but in a way that I wasn't aware of at the time, you know, growing up. Yeah, for sure. So you wrote a book and very successfully received, which is fantastic. The End of Bias, it was actually named a best book of the year by the World Economic Forum. AARP, Greater Good, and Inc. So, I mean, that's some pretty remarkable endorsements. Congratulations. In the end of bias, so in the actual book, you argue that bias is pervasive in our society. So, like, that's really interesting, like, fundamentally for me, because that means that pervasive is quite literally in in everything everything that we do. Um, And it is, in fact, a major barrier to achieving true equality. You also explain how bias is perpetuated by institutions from education to employment. And you discuss how bias can manifest in both subtle and obviously overt ways. There's, you know, kind of like stopping at at that particular point for me, it's important as I started doing a lot of work in the last five years, and I'm embarrassed to say, you know, in my early fifties, I just turned 52, that I've waited so long in my career to recognize that this is such an important, important point. But I've never been more aware of the amount of bias that has shaped, you know, who's important and who's not and who has rights and who doesn't. And probably one of my favorite little micro examples of that is the color of Mm band-aids and how like 
you know, there's just, it doesn't fit for me. And that's a, a wellness framework, right? It's the thing mm -hmm. that you use when you get a boo-boo as a kid, feel better. And so, you know, just being able to kind of start pulling the scales away from our eyes, sorry about the metaphor, but we start to see a little bit more clearly, not that I've figured all this out yet, but like, this is something that is a really important work. And so anyway, you go on and, and, you, and you talk about, or the book, I should say, it offers solutions, which I was very appreciative of, of how these biases, they can be in, uh, specifically addressed, including increasing diversity in educational institutions, of course, providing opportunities for marginalized communities and creating transparent and accountable systems. So that is a big win. And then the last part that I want to highlight in the book, and I hope I'm not sounding too much like an infomercial, but everybody that's listening to should right now go buy the book. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can also find it on Amazon, of course. Uh, also, audio version, which I prefer, is available to you as well. So anyway, the last part, it emphasizes the importance of creating an inclusive environment, and it recognizes that all individuals, individuals deserve respect and equal access to resources. And then ultimately, the book argues that the end of bias is possible. So there is this like <laughs> shining star, North Star for us to be able to, to work with. So all of that kind of is my, my book report. What is the problem? And I know it's a little bit of an obtuse question, but what do you see? It's a primary problem that the book addresses and why is it so urgent today? You know, I think it would be hard to find an area of human experience that isn't touched by some kind of bias, you know, in some way. And I think that that applies to all of us, no matter what our background is. We both experience it on the receiving end. You know, we are subject to other people's expectations about us and assumptions about us and um, maybe unexamined beliefs about us based on different categories that we belong to. And then we in turn do this to others. You know, we, we have unexamined expectations and assumptions about others that really color our interactions and our behavior toward other people. And the reason that this is so important is that it systematically changes the opportunities that are available to people. You know, if I, you know, if you and I are interacting and I make assumptions about you based on some categories that you belong to that I've learned about in my culture, then I'm not really interacting with you. <laughs> you know, I'm interacting with like a hallucination about you or a daydream about you instead of you. So it also really prevents, you know, bias, unexamined bias or unconscious bias really prevents us from engaging with reality, engaging with like the truth of what's in front of us. And, you know, the, the effects of this are so huge in healthcare. You know, you pointed out Band-Aids, but there are really extreme examples of the ways that unconscious and unexamined bias in healthcare affects patients of color, affects women, affects so many different groups, heavier weight people. We, we see, you know, there are studies that show that doctors interact with people differently depending on what groups they belong to. And this can have really serious health consequences. That's just one area. You know, there's education, criminal justice, policing, the workplace. There's so many different areas where where unexamined and unconscious bias are present. I just, uh, you know, feel really passionately that this is this is a human issue that we all need to work together to to tackle. Does it point to more of homogenous culture ultimately? And what I mean by that is is part of the solution trying to look the part, not like give you a personal example. I had a family member who was critically ill and we were making some really important decisions. And so it was like sleepless nights and, you know, 
a lot of time in the hospital. And I was very intentional with my appearance of like trying to not look like I felt, <laughs> you know, not dressing up in a three-piece suit, but at the same time, like, and the reason I was doing that was I was trying to make, make sure that the staff was going to be treating me a certain way. Mm-hmm. It was just a tactic, right? And a tactic incidentally actually worked because oftentimes I would get mistaken for somebody that worked there. Mm-hmm. And, and so like there's the knowledge part of it, but then as you start framing out the other side of it, does it go both ways? So when you say, does it go both ways? Are you saying like, is it possible to kind of manipulate others' biases for one's benefit? That's what I mean. Yes, exactly. It certainly is. And I think people do it all the time. I mean, I think what, you know, what you're describing is a tactic that is very common. You know, I think I certainly heard that growing up as well, you know, dress up, you know, when you're trying to make a case at the airport gate, you know, or, you know, you, you need your flight change and you want them to treat you differently, you know, dress up like absolutely. And as you know, as you found, it works. There was something in the mind of those hospital staff members that saw you and deci- it sounds like, you know, decided to maybe give you the benefit of the doubt or maybe go a little bit of an extra mile for you because they put you in a particular category. Yeah, right. And the category in this case that I, the persona I was trying to create was one of I'm important, right? Yes. It sounds silly, but that's quite literally just the gist of it. So therefore you should treat me a little bit different. And, you know, I wasn't, by the way, <laughs> I'm not a donor to the hospital in <laughs> no way. So it was just a manipulation tactic, I guess. I didn't thought of it exactly like that, but that's exactly what the outcome is. Yeah. So this is a big problem. It's a, it's a pervasive problem. Why now? Oh my gosh. You know, I started working on this project in early 2016. I'd been writing about the subject of bias and discrimination for many years leading up to that. And you know, my my interest in the subject really came out of my own experiences in the workplace as a woman, you know, experiencing things like having my work doubted when my, you know, when my male colleagues' work was celebrated um, or having, you know, having to prove myself over and over when, you know, a male colleague was given uh, sort of the benefit of the doubt immediately. And, and so I'd been thinking about this for a long time. And then you know, lots of things happened. Sheryl Sandberg published Lean In, which sort of made this case that it's important for women to sit at the table and and step up. And then there were studies that found that that message actually causes people to blame women more for their challenges in the workplace. And so there were a lot of kind of different cultural currents happening. And of course, over the last several years, I mean, my goodness, you know, I was writing the book in 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019. And when I was finishing it actually was summer of 2020 when George Floyd was murdered. And there was kind of a global reckoning with some of these issues. So it feels very, you know, it feels very timely. Yeah, 100% on the timeliness of it. You know, I'm old enough to remember different tragedies that have happened, like, you know, even in the 80s with the Rodney King and mm-hmm. I think that now the media is framed so much in favor of the general population as opposed to specific outlets. Outlets still have a lot of power, but their individual voices also carry a lot of weight and because they're, they're algorithm-based. And so anyway, definitely we're, we're seeing a lot more like viscerally able to connect to injustice in yeah. a way that we just simply just didn't have access before. Um, and we're relying, relying on media to be able to carry those messages to us. And, you know, that has a lot of negativity or firewalls, I should say, of actually delivering against the empowerment 
framework that I have a friend who I actually met as a, he was a guest on the podcast and he did, I did a two-part series with him on this particular topic. And he is a hundred percent Native American. He's also a very successful Silicon Valley CEO. And so Aaron is, is his name. He said that it's so pervasive in the funding frameworks. So mm-hmm. the economic frameworks that you just wouldn't, you can't even believe it. And the reason why is it creates a shortcut. And so his, for investors, yes. so there's this innate confidence that if yes. you are a white male right, and you went to Harvard and got your MBA, then the other white male who also went to Harvard and probably knows some of your professors, he's probably yes. 10 years older than you. He understands you right. in a way where he thinks it like increases his chances of success as opposed to somebody who might not look like them or come from a different socioeconomic framework or different education. Yeah. And then there's this much larger unknown, in which case now the bet is really being made more on the business frameworks, mm-hmm. which is not oftentimes the central thesis for the investor. Right. Even though maybe it should be <laughs> more yeah. often. Right. I mean, I think, you know, if we look at, you know, Sam Bankman Freed, for instance, and kind of the benefit of the doubt, the just sort of like, you know, repeated benefit of the doubt he was giving, he was given by investors. And then we try to imagine, you know, Samantha Bankman Freed or, you know, Sam Bankman Freed, who was African American, being given that same benefit of the doubt. And it's almost comically impossible to imagine, you know, someone kind of in a baggy t shirt and, you know, baggy jeans playing video games while, you know, pitching investors, it's impossible right. to imagine someone who fits a different mold being successful at that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So society creates this natural like shorthand for how we interact with each other based on these personas. And as you've, as you've correctly identified, it's all manufactured, right? It's all, um, I forget the word you use, hologram or something, right? Um, it, it's not its not actually real representative of the well, individual. Right. Well, we're sort of interacting with a hallucination that's based on, you know, inherited cultural information. So with that framework and the way that you wrote the book, I'm really curious, who is the target reader? Hmm. You know, I undertook this project because I wanted to understand what we do about this problem. I'd been writing about the problem of bias for a long time. And as journalists, we focus on problems. You know, uh, we, journalists tend to not focus on solutions. We tend to uncover bad things that are happening and then try to expose them to as many people as possible, you know, expo- expose what's going on. And so I had this kind of burning question, which was like, what do we do about the problem? Like, what actually reduces the impact of gender bias and racial bias and bias on the basis of weight and religion and ability and all of these different categories. And I couldn't find an answer to this question. I mean, I couldn't really find the book that I thought should exist. And so I wrote the book to answer this question that I was desperately curious about. And so I see the the ideal reader as someone who also cares about bias and discrimination and is curious about what could be done differently in their own lives, in their own communities, in their own neighborhoods. I think another ideal reader is someone who works as part of an organization or a business um, or an institution that is looking to improve in terms of becoming more fair and more just and more inclusive. Um, And the book 
provides a lot of different, you know, stories and and tools and and science behind what actually kind of moves the needle uh, to make organizations more fair. And so I think it's really, you know, anyone who cares about these issues and kind of wants to take the next step beyond just acknowledging the problem, to take the next step toward action, toward doing something positive. It is interesting. Like, I don't know if you follow Saturday Night Live at all or you know, various comedians, but like, yeah. like this topic is one that's been coming up a lot and is something that we're, you know, we're definitely feeling like what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, even frameworks of how I should refer to different ethnicities. Yes. And by I, I mean like the capital I, the all of us I, right. And, and, and our overall like uncomfortableness of potentially, you know, being fearful of offending people mm-hmm. unintentionally, right? Like, like tr- recognizing that I have biases, but how do I successfully navigate a conversation with somebody I actually want to navigate it with or right. may even care about deeply or right. are not perceived as offensive? Right. And the irony, like the sort of tragic irony is that often when people are extremely worried about appearing biased, appearing prejudiced, right. they actually behave in ways that make them seem more biased. Right. <laughs> like, you know, um, act, being kind of stiff and uncomfortable or, you know, being unable to kind of carry on a fluid conversation. These come from sometimes a fear of saying the wrong thing or offending someone, but in fact, sometimes come across in a way that actually seems more offensive. I mean, I think that, you know, one thing that I really absorbed over the course of working on this project was that we are all inevitably going to screw up and say the wrong thing. And I think what's actually more important than just never screwing up is what happens after we screw up. And often people are so mortified by saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing that they will retreat, that they'll say, you know what, I can't even engage with this subject anymore. It's, It's too embarrassing. It's too, I feel too ashamed. You know, I feel too guilty about my inability to handle this correctly. And they'll kind of withdraw. And I would encourage people to actually take that moment of that screw up moment where, oh God, I can't believe I just said the wrong thing. Oh, what what am I going to do? Take that moment actually as a huge opportunity to repair a relationship to repair a dynamic, you know, a connection with another person and learn something more about the other person, learn something more about oneself and actually use that as like a springboard for a better encounter next time. I I love that. I think that is a really nice and powerful way to that we can start leveraging it. But I but I'm hoping for one more practical tip in the mm-hmm. book that we can take away and apply to our lives. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Let's see, which which would be one that I feel like could be most practical. One approach that is a really powerful tool for reducing stereotyping is a particular way of interacting with people who are from a group that one is not part of. And so basically what the research has shown is that if you connect with someone from a different group and you're you have equal status and you collaborate on a project together where you have a shared goal that starts to decrease each group's stereotyping of the other decrease bias and promote things like friendship across differences so 
one like super practical kind of tactical thing that I, you know, that people can do if they're interested in starting to break down some, you know, some boundaries or some differences is look for opportunities to actually collaborate with people who belong to a group that you don't belong to and have a shared goal where you're working together collaboratively. This really starts to break down stereotyping and starts to allow us to see one another more clearly instead of seeing each other as these kind of hallucinations or daydream that we so often do. That's super helpful. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing right now. So you've published a book. Um, it's a very important book and it's addressing a probably one of the most important issues in North America at the moment, maybe even globally, uh, but certainly certainly in America. Are you speaking? Like, what? how are you spending your time? <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm continuing to, I'm speaking a lot about the book. So I, I travel to organizations and companies and conferences and do a lot of public speaking about this subject. So that is actually something that I was kind of thrilled to find people were really interested in after the book came out. I didn't, I didn't exactly know, you know, you never know when you publish a book, how it's going to be received, but I was very, you know, happy to know that people were, were really interested and wanted to hear more. So I'm doing a lot of speaking and I'm also publishing a newsletter called who we are to each other, where I interview people and kind of continue this conversation about how we interact with one another in more humane ways. And I am starting the research for my next book. <laughs> Exciting. Can't wait. I have one last question. Yes. What is your personal motto? I think if I had to choose a personal motto, it would be, there's more to the story and try to find out what it is. Our guest today has been Jessica Nordell author and speaker. Most recently released The End of Bias, A Beginning. You can find it on Amazon and Amazon Audio. You must listen to this book. Jessica, it has been a pleasure having you on the Happy Market Research Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Everyone else, I hope you have a great rest of your day. 